This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Ev McCann and this is The Hard Part. This shows a deep dive into strategies, founding stories, and more behind Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is John Ruffalo. John is the founder and managing partner of Mavericks Private Equity. Mavericks Private Equity is a private equity firm focused on technology-enabled growth and disruption. They look for great entrepreneurs interested in globally scaling their business and looking for a financial partner to invest at least 50 to 75 million in their business. In this episode, we discuss how John started Omer's Ventures, the story behind his big investment in Shopify, and his thoughts on the Canadian tech space. Please enjoy my conversation with John Ruffalo. John, I'd love to start with uh, your time at York University, and, and you took accounting there. Why well, did you in want to fact, take accounting I actually in university? took finance and accounting. It was combined. And uh, uh, right from high school, right, right from when I was 16, I was working uh, in a bank. And uh, uh, in my teen years, I became the bank manager, and I thought finance was the route that I was going to go into and had full intentions of going 
uh, into corporate finance, which was really the precursor to investment banking. That term was not used. And uh, when I was a, a third year student at uh, Schulich at York University, they had these internship programs uh, and the best ones were with accounting firms. So I just thought, hey, you know what, let me just check this out. And I worked uh, in the summer at both uh, the accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, and at BMO. And uh, I figured, you know what, let me figure out which one I like better. And, and you ultimately chose Arthur Anderson. Yes, half of it's Accenture and the Accenture? other half largely merged with Deloitte. And that's how I ended up at Deloitte. Okay. And you spent a significant amount of time at Arthur Anderson and then Deloitte. Um, what did you like about the accounting side? Mm -hmm. And I know you were kind of on the technology end of things. Like, what was that? Yeah, experience it, like? it, it was the reason why I selected accounting over the banking career. Um, I I accepted the accounting job at half the uh, salary of the banking, and it was because of the flexibility of learning businesses uh, in a broad array of industries, uh, I thought was far more attractive. Uh, and at the time, uh, the opportunity in the bank was gonna be a little bit more siloed. So I figured, let me go into the accounting firm and uh, go as fast as I can, and then you know, make a decision later. And what happened is, you generally started off, at least at the time, in the audit business. But I got frustrated. I, I, I liked the audit business, but I was frustrated that I was reviewing transactions that had already occurred. And I wanted to be uh, far closer to the decision-making process. And at the time, the closest uh, business was the tax business business. Uh, and I became a, a tax consultant and I felt, okay, at least I'm a little bit more at the front end. But then even once I did that, I was getting even you know, more of a desire to be closer to the CEOs in uh, decisions. And that's when I created the, the technology practice at Arthur Anderson. What was the technology industry like at that time um, in Canada, and you know, and, and why did you want to take a focus on technology? Was it an obvious decision in hindsight? So it's or, funny because people you know, have asked me that like question, that and it was actually by process of elimination. So I knew that I was hungry. So I would I would have been twenty five years old at the time. I thought I knew everything. I knew nothing. Um, and I really wanted to understand how CEOs operated the business. Problem was, uh, if it was financial services, you really think that a bank CEO is going to, you know, give a hoot what a guy like me is going to say. And the only industry where the CEOs were closest to my age was the technology industry, and no one in my firm gave a shit about it. And the at the time, so this would have been 1992, and Microsoft was only known for its MS DOS product, and I, I think Word 
may have started in Excel, but it was still Lotus one, two, three was the, uh, you know, the, the, the big spreadsheet software. And there was another company called Oracle that really just launched its relation, relational databases. And there was nothing really else in Canada other than Nortel. And at the time, um, I want to say it was, I, I may have, be off a bit, but it was, it may have either been Bell Northern Research and, and either shortly already moved into Nortel, but it was very, very nascent. And the interesting thing that happened is when I said to the partners, hey, I have an interest in doing this. And by the way, would you mind if you have a technology client by accident, hand it over to me. I don't care how shitty it is. And they almost laughed like, oh, yeah, here you go. You'll go out and get it. And it was a brutal winter of three months of trying as hard as I could from 1992 to 1995. And then the world changed. And you mentioned world change. What was what was the major change that happened? What, what did the Canadian tech scene look like after 1995? And ultimately, there was that bubble 2000, 2001. Yeah, what so were those years the like, magical moment, uh, and I think it was around the end of 1994, thereabouts, um, uh, Netscape had launched the Mosaic browser. And people kind of heard of the internet, but it was viewed more of an institutional thing or a, it, it, it's like the blockchain is right now. It was very technical. And, and then it was consumerized. And the whole uh, concept of surfing the web popped up and you had these terms of the information superhighway, et cetera. And it was crazy. Um, and almost instantaneously, everyone who was not on the internet was in 1995. And all of a sudden, uh, I went from being a dud for three years to all of a sudden this genius who predicted it, but I had no insight. It was completely by accident. And the Canadian technology scene really was born for the first time. Not to suggest that there wasn't other companies around, but there were few and far between. And all of these great startups started popping up everywhere. And the, the, Canadian venture capital scene really started uh, uh, starting around 1995 with modest amounts, but that 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 was really the beginning of the transition from the Canadian manufacturing economy to the service slash technology economy. And now there's a wild wave that happens there up until about 2000, 2001, and you see sort mm -hmm. of crash or however you want to call it and we're kind of going through that situation yes. nowadays as well with evaluation crunch layoffs rifts what are some similarities or differences and you've also gone through 2008 time as well what are some similarities and differences between yeah, all so, these so kind of downward the, the, cycles? the dot com crash so in 2001 
it's very different from what it was right now. These were these were businesses that should never have been businesses. And in fact, as a person whose background was in accounting and finance, it was actually particularly frustrating for me because I was seeing these values of these businesses go crazy. And I kept on asking myself, what was it that I was missing? Well, it turned out I wasn't missing anything. And at the time, the value of these businesses were predicated on eyeballs and impressions and things that were really not monetizable, but everyone kept on dreaming. And there was all these promises being made on these companies that never really uh, uh, came to fruition. And so the wipeout that occurred there was a very deserving wipeout of uneconomic businesses. And as a result of that, the, the people who funded those businesses got wiped out as well. And that wipeout bottomed out in around 2005. And at 2005, I would say, was the absolute pit of the Canadian technology ecosystem. There was no capital. There were no new businesses. It was miserable. And I remember spending a lot of time with the federal government at the time trying to resurrect the sector and looking at public policy because it could not have been resurrected by itself. And that's when we started first talking about the venture capital action plan, all those sorts of, of things. And interestingly, as we're talking about those things, and again, those businesses you know, there was really no resurrection, but in 2008, 2009 comes the financial crisis and it didn't really have a monumental impact in Canada because we were still at a low. It actually impacted the U.S. much greater than it impacted Canada. But what was fascinating, and this is what people don't see, the it was 2008 was the most important uh, technology cycle that got started. Remember when I said 1994 to about 2000 was called, it was really the web 1.0 cycle. It ended and it was 2008 was the beginning of the, the true web 2.0 cycle which unleashed the next 10 years of, 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 of all of the activity in Canada. But that cycle ended around, I say 2015, but certainly by 2017. What were some factors that made 2008 so impactful? Was it that we were at a pit and there was nowhere to go but up? You know, the iPhone coming out around then, you know, more investment in the yes. space? like. Was it kind of a mix there of a bunch of things? There was three forces that collided all at the same time. They all started at different points. Um, number one was mobility first, right? So the mobile operating systems finally got uh, quick enough uh, in that developers were no longer developing on a PC-centric world. And what was the coincidental technologies that just popped up just before that 
it really was Apple, but not with the phone because it was BlackBerry that really drove the smartphone, but it was the App Store. That was a marvel. That was the disruption to BlackBerry, not the phone itself. So that was number one. Number two was cloud computing. And, you know, AWS, which I think started a few years before that, it got no traction because I remember all the discussions. Nobody was going to be putting their data or there was big worries around latency. And then by 2008, the speeds and the bandwidth. So it was a combination of telecom speeds, uh, chip improvements that made cloud computing possible and real companies started moving onto the cloud. And the third thing was really something very new, which was the advent of social. And although social started earlier and you had Friendster and MySpace, this is when I want to say Facebook probably had about 100 million users and it really started to cross the chasm. And I remember it was the first time I ever heard the word social graph. And it was social, not as this fun thing, but it was a way to actually uh, leverage uh, businesses on the internet. So it was the collision of those three forces. And what's interesting about 2008 is that was the promise of the internet 10 years before, but it was all a facade. But it did happen just 10 years late. That was the rise of the next wave. And once that technology cycle started to occur in 2008, 2009, you started having a bunch of entrepreneurs starting to build and leverage that. You know, in Canada, that's when Shopify, that's the period that Shopify was born. And there is a capital lag effect, usually about three years. And so in 2011 became the beginning of the venture capital investing cycle, which uh, again, it lags about three years, but that has been the best venture cycle in Canadian history. And ultimately, you were a part of that yes. cycle with Omer's Ventures. How did that come, come around? So you're Arthur Anderson, morphed into Deloitte. What was happening there? Were you looking for a shift? Were you excited about the space and you wanted to get into the investment uh, side? How did that Again, another accident. My life now seems to be a culmination of accidents. Um, I had zero intention of leaving. I was on the board of Deloitte. Um, I was uh, anticipating uh, a change in our leadership uh, in the next 18 months and uh, I was looking at, uh, you know, what I was going to do from a leadership perspective and getting all excited about that. But from the period, again, 2005 to 2010, I was heavily involved in trying to develop uh, public policy. And one of the areas of public policy was I was chastising the Canadian pension funds um, they are a creature of tax policy in Canada, and they were doing nothing uh, to help the ecosystem whatsoever. So I started uh, 
at creating policy. In fact, the one policy that I had created and it was having a lot of deep discussions with the federal government was a 1% pension tax to go to innovation. So either voluntarily do it or we'll force you to do it. Um, and in 2010, I got a call from Michael Nobrega, who was the CEO of Omers, who coincidentally was the tax partner who I worked for back at Arthur Anderson uh, when I had started. So me and him were longtime friends. And he told me that he wanted to support innovation in Canada. And I must say, I was pleasantly surprised and quite shocked. And he had asked me, could you advise us on how do we do it? And I was absolutely happy to. By the third meeting, uh, I discovered it wasn't a advising. It was, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, and I'm like, well, what do you want from me? And he says, well, we want you to quit and build this at Omer's. And I said, well, why would I do that? I, I had a great job well-paid, et cetera. And they said, you know, you have been poking at us and you think you're so smart. You come over here and you build it yourself. And I felt, Jesus, you'd be a jackass uh, to all of a sudden say no. And we had a, a long negotiation because I really didn't want to leave Deloitte because I loved it so much. But I actually just felt an obligation that there was nothing in Canada, really, uh, certainly nothing of any scale. And I felt, well, uh, uh, Michael Nobrega was giving me this opportunity, uh, and I owed it to the Canadian ecosystem to see if I could do it. And I got to tell you, I did not, the welcome mat was not made available to me at all. In fact, it was quite nasty. Um, and I ignored it all. And the one advantage I had, I was an advisor to not only many of the VC firms in Canada, but I was an advisor to many of them in Silicon Valley. And that gave me an interesting perch to figure out who was doing what right and who was doing things completely wrong. And I could cherry pick uh, uh, what to do and what to avoid. And what were some things that you initially started with that you thought were good and uh, rolled them all together? Like what were some things that were missing in well, the Canadian ecosystem? Um, the, I'd say the biggest thing was uh, Canadian VCs at the time were great at executing term sheets that were designed to screw the founder. And they were all downside protection focused, which all it was doing was protecting at least a 1x return on your investment. And I was looking at that, yet the Silicon Valley folks were not doing that. They did that 10 years prior, but they were focused in on the upside. Now, if you do proper due diligence and you figure out what is an appropriate uh, valuation, uh, focusing on the downside is, is a red herring. And I, and I saw that, uh, with the U S folks. So a few of the policies were 
uh, only two types of deals, common shares or simple prefs. That's it. We would not do any other form of deal. And we largely stuck uh, to that. And it really is just a question of valuation. Now, in doing valuation, another thing that I learned was um, once you do the proper work and, and develop your valuation range, if the founder's uh, uh, demand for a certain valuation falls anywhere near their range, even slightly out of their range, zero negotiation. You're just done. Right, you start off on the right foot, but you're really starting off as as partners. And you know, I'd say the third thing, uh, and this was more from my uh, Arthur Anderson and Deloitte days. A venture capitalist is like any other professional services provider, lawyer, accountant, etc. They're there to serve the entrepreneur. And to help that entrepreneur grow, it's just that the comp, the way that we get compensated, uh, is is just different. It's not based on time. And the moment you have that ethos of customer service, um, the the uh, uh, entrepreneurs uh, will come to you. And in fact, the combination of those three things at the very early stage uh, really launched the success of Omer's Ventures. We started to dominate and attract the best founders in Canada. And the one investment that changed the game for us was actually Hootsuite back in 2012, which we did an investment in a way that no one had really seen in Canada. And I got to tell you, we got uh, lots of flack for it and also lots of kudos. And it's interesting to see who did what. Uh, How did that investment come about with, with Ryan Holmes there? Was it, you know, he had heard about yes. Hootsuite. You went out to Vancouver to see him. I'd love well, to, like, we heard about, like, Hootsuite was flying at the time. About. It had a little bit of capital. Um but it was already profitable um, at very early stages. And again, it was in the social media space, which was still, I'd say, floundering somewhat. It was st- you know, it was at the earlier stages still. Um, but the key was at the time, uh, uh, Ryan um, liked us, but like every other founder at the time and remember we're only off we've been only i i started it i started there january 2011 but i didn't quote open the doors until october 2011 so this is not even a year afterwards and there was lots of buzz on omer's ventures but it was a pension fund and i i i see why there was lots of negative buzz because all the pension funds were slow. Their governance models were terrible. Um, you know, they had no operators, et cetera. But the model that I had created was part of the conditions of me joining was it really was a separate independent arm of OMERS. And fund one was 100% funded by OMERS. 
but then third parties came in, but it was designed as a GPLP structure and everything was designed as if it was an independent VC firm that just so happened to be sponsored by a pension fund. And it had a different governance, different compensation, different strategy, different marketing. Everything was different and pre-negotiated or else I wouldn't have joined. Um, and, but still the founders, you know, knew how badly the pension funds treated uh, uh, startup entrepreneurs. So they were quite cynical. And I would say other folks in the venture capital ecosystem were highly cynical and were hoping for the rapid demise of it. And, and, um, it was Ryan where we, where he said, um, uh, what I really want to do is don't really need capital for operating the business. I really want to get rid of some early investors that were actually causing him a pain in the ass and also leak out a little bit of money to some early angels and, and some of the employees. And, um, and at the time, it was for $20 million, which was, you might as well have said $20 billion today, but it was kind of like that reaction. And for context, when I originally agreed to join Omer's, the fund size was $180 million, and half of it was Omer's, and half of it was a Dutch pension fund called APB. And what people don't remember, it was never called Omer's Ventures. It was called INCAF, which exists to the day, but it's based in the Netherlands. And um, I was there to manage INCAF originally and then uh, decided to unwind the whole thing. And then I decided, no, no, let's create Omer's Ventures in a very, very different way. And that's what was publicly launched in uh in the october of 2011 anyways um uh, ryan wanted a 20 million dollar 100 secondary of common shares uh all of those factors were never ever seen in as far as i'm aware in canadian vc history but in the valley that was not that was actually a significant deal but it wasn't outrageous by any stretch and i remember when we were around the table and there was only you know half a dozen or so of us and we're on an investment committee and basically it said all right everybody hold each other's hands because either we're going to change the world in canada or we're going to look like the biggest fucking idiots canada has ever seen and to be honest you're always on that thin edge of looking like a fool or a hero every time you invest anyways. So the interesting thing is the investment community thought we were fools and they were saying that. Uh, but the entrepreneurial community said, oh my God, Silicon Valley came to Canada. This is awesome. And all of a sudden, the kimono was opened, and that's how we got 
Desire to Learn, Wattpad, um, and Shopify. And it was just one after another. And it was like, ah, that's what they were waiting for. And it was really the first time that the Canadian entrepreneurs, they did want to be funded by Canadian capital, not exclusively, but they didn't have to go to the U.S. to find this ethos. And this is when we really knew we were on the right track. And this is when we started doubling down and it started raising third-party capital. But that was the seminal moment between 2012 and 2013. I'd be curious a little bit about the, about the Shopify story, like D2L, Wattpad, like amazing businesses. But, you know, what was Shopify like at the time when you first met the team? Where, what stage were they at? And looking at that investment now, it, like it's an amazing investment. But at the time, what was like you know, e-commerce, this yeah, new so, platform, like so what were people thinking then? It was, um, it, you know, it was the, it was around the end of 2012. Shopify had already been funded by Bessemer back in, I, I want to say 2009 or thereabouts. So, and Bessemer uh, uh, funded them very, very early uh, for, you know, Besser, I, I have to say, if it's not Bessemer's greatest return in their history, it's, it's got to be the top two or three. And so it was before the formation of Omer's Ventures. And then back in 2011, so this is the period that we still haven't opened up our doors, but deal flow is flying in. And the problem was, I'm trying to, so I, by myself, I have my uh, executive assistant who I moved over from Deloitte and uh, I was there for 48 hours and a hundred deals came in and I'm sitting with my assistant, you know, in a, in a, a little corner office, tiny one, uh, like going, how am I going to build this business, do all the things I need to do, structuring it, hire employees, et cetera. And yet I'm getting deal flow because uh, uh, all these Canadian entrepreneurs were desperate for anyone who had any capital. So I called my good friend, Peter Caressia, who had just left uh, Vengrowth at the time. And I asked him, Peter, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just kind of thinking about my next gig. And I said, can you come and help me here and just filter through this avalanche of deal flow that I just cannot get through? And and Peter came in and you know he was amazing at filtering through. Now, one of them was Shopify, and it came in relatively early. We're only a few months there. And I was aware of Shopify. In fact, a, another VC friend of mine told me to chase that once we uh, opened the doors. But it came in. And what happened, Shopify had a problem. Uh, they needed to uh, replace some uh, investors. And if they didn't, they would fall off of, offside of CCPC purposes. And we were asked, would we, and the investment was, was very modest. I think it was at $3 million. But the condition was 
no board seat, no, no nothing, no observer, et cetera. And I thought, and I, I loved the business immediately and we really wanted to do the deal, but I made the call to say no, because here it is a pension fund that already was super duper negative. And my very, very first deal was going to be one that we had zero governance rights. Does this sound a little bit familiar with FTX, right? Like I was paranoid about that. I said no. And instead we, we did the investment in wave and, and Peter had sourced wave and we did that investment. But I always said to Shopify, when I'm ready, we're going to come back out. And we did. And it was the one company that I always regretted not doing that, but I had to do that for the right reason. And at the time, uh, I had hired, uh, I started hiring permanent team and Derek Smith, uh, who recently passed away. Um, uh, I asked him, can you do me a favor and chase this Shopify? He did a fantastic job kind of keeping in front of them. And it wasn't until eventually I met with Toby and we had a coffee meeting when he bought, uh, I think what was it called? Jet Cooper back in Toronto in 2012-ish timeframe. It was a body shop and still to this day, uh, uh, some of the folks there have been absolutely vital to the growth of Shopify. Uh this acquisition opened up to, uh, Shopify's Toronto's Toronto offices on Spadina, and uh, Toby had agreed to to go out for coffee before the opening, and we were just going to meet for coffee for about thirty minutes, and lo and behold, it ended up being two hours and thirty minutes, and it was the most amazing coffee meeting I think I've ever had. In that, I already knew. I was going to invest in them and we had basically solved all of Canada's and the world's problems in those two and a half hours and immediately realized we see eye to eye. And here's what actually happened. In a prior meeting, I had said to them that why don't they raise a hundred million dollars? At a time, again, when 100 million would have been 10 billion right now. And I said, I would take half of that and put in 50 million. And then uh, their current investors would put in, I think, 20 and they would seek another 30 million, which ended up being insight. And uh, they also thought it was an egregious uh, amount of money to raise. And at that time, there were 13 million of revenue, but you could clearly see that this business was very elegant and very clear that with a little bit of capital, they can keep on attracting more and more customers and the ROI would just drop to the bottom line. It was uh, really the easiest investment to see that this thing here could scale in a massive market. So we were already convinced that we would want to do this deal, but there's only one problem. Uh, the great American firms all wanted to do that deal. And I still to this day uh, uh, thank Toby for this, but Toby said he's under tremendous pressure 
that the U.S. firms, Sequoia and all those folks, wanted to lead that investment, but he wanted to be in Canada. He wanted, he didn't want the pressure of all foreign-based investors in there, and we acted as a good foil just in case that things went sideways. And he said, you got 30 days uh, to do the deal. And, you know, of, of course, the answer is only one answer. Of course, we will. And yet I'm shitting my pants going, can we really do this in 30 days? And he said, of course, we can. And the second thing was, we had done all of this work in advance in the valuation. We already knew the numbers. And I said, yeah, 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 no problem, right? And this would be the valuation. He goes, okay, here's the second thing. Uh, your valuation is kind of cute, but here's the number. And it was uh, it was materially outside of our range. And I had to just make the call and I just said, fine. And we did the deal in 21 days. It was the fastest deal ever. And in fact, they were the ones slowing us up because they needed some... Uh, some approvals that they couldn't do as quickly as possible. So anyways, that deal uh, uh, was very important for us at the time too, because the the moment those, those great U.S. firms realized who beat them out, I am sure they were going, who the hell are these goofballs? And why the hell did Shopify pick them? And it, it did put us on the map in Silicon Valley, to be honest. Investments turned out extremely well. And ultimately, you've you've launched Mavericks now, which I'd love to talk about a bit more. But I guess a good transition there would be, you know, you've launched a new investment firm. So how do you how do you look at businesses or do you look at a founder like whether it's Alan from Wattpad or Toby or, or Ryan Holmes? Like, do you analyze the founder and a bit of the business? Are you looking at the business from an investment standpoint, like from your accounting perspective? Like, how do you look at making investments? Yeah, so it's really the same thing. And and what happens is the more the mature the business, you can play around with the relevance of the three categories. But category one, it's always first and foremost, is who is the team? And, you know, not only the founder, but the founders. And what is it that's really driving them? And what's what's the true problem that they're trying to solve and why? And that motivation speaks to a lot of the resiliency and the persistence of those founders, depending on the answer to that question. But that always has the most dominant uh, proportion of the consideration. The second is now that you know the problem and you know that you write, you have, you know, a team that, you know, you, you would believe in, you look at the size of the problem or the total addressable market. And, you know, there's really two ways to look at it. And one way is to look at it from a horizontal perspective. What are all the complementary products or where could it go? Could it expand to different, you know, solution sets? Or you go vertically in that uh, could you could this problem uh, even if it's a niche problem, 
could you keep on extending the TAM downwards so it gets deeper and deeper into helping you know, that, that problem from an operational perspective. Um, and, and to be honest, it's, uh, you know, if, if there's a blind side that I have is it's easier for my, in my brain to think horizontally. And when it's vertically, it's harder, uh, because you really got to know, uh, the, that problem that they're trying to solve at a very, very deep level. And then once you, determine that, then you'd say, okay, now we've got a big problem, a uh, big market. Now, why this? And, and why this company? And this is when you get into the, the execution of the business. Now, when it's very, very early stage, you have very few proof points on the execution other than perhaps how are they building the product or the solution set. When it's later stage, it becomes more of financial diligence of you already know that they built the product. You already know they have product market fit. Can they execute in a scalable fashion? So the difference now with Mavericks is in that third bucket, we do more financial due diligence than I would have uh, if I was at, at, at Omer's. But those three same buckets are the same three buckets, whether it's a growth stage deal or whether it's an early stage deal. And ultimately, what is the what's the focus with Mavericks? Is it more that growth stage? Is that different than your time time at Omers? And ultimately, yeah, so why did you start? What Mavericks? it was was really two things that were happening simultaneously, and it and it really was starting to bother me at Omers. Uh, number one. The technology cycle started in 2008, and you could see it clearly ending around 2015-ish. Um, and uh, But what you started to see was, although the technology cycle was coming to its natural uh, end, what was what was happening is that the application of those technologies was crossing the chasm. And traditional industries, banks, healthcare companies, transportation, logistics, retail, were adopting those technologies to make their businesses bigger, faster, cheaper, better in order to compete effectively against their their competition. That was number one. Uh, And number two, when I was starting to see this chasm, Companies that were falling into that chasm, so let's say it was a traditional retailer that decided, ah, we're going to put technology to enable our business to be stronger. It didn't really fit into the venture investing because in classic venture investing, you are investing in technological businesses, but not traditional businesses that are technology enabled. And I know now there's 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 somewhat of a mixing, but and but then in Omers they had the buyout private equity group, which exclusively invested in traditional businesses with EBITDA, and they would only do buyout deals. So I started to see all of these companies falling in the middle, and in the United States they already started to develop that asset class starting around 2011, 2012. And it was called growth private equity. 
And it's not late stage venture because that's what I was doing at Overs, but true growth private equity. There was not a single firm dedicated to that in Canada. And in 2017 is when I started, uh, where I got approval to build Omer's growth equity to fill in that void. But by 2018, realized it was far more effective to start my own firm to fill in that void. And hence, Mavericks was born. I guess I'd love to chat a little bit about the current VC and investment landscape in Canada. Like Mavericks is unique in that model, but what what is your opinion you've you've been in the technology space for a long time you've been in the vc space for a long time what what is different now what are things that we could still well, work on and one improve? of the things that i do worry about is uh, we're going we're going to go through this reckoning and lots of vc firms in particular uh will be getting hit very hard they've already been hit hard whether they've disclosed that they've been hit hard is another story. But on average, their books are down at least 50%, uh, if not higher, um, in, in their entire portfolio. And the next fundraising cycle is going to be quite challenging for them because the ability to raise capital from Canadian sources is quite limited. And they're not going to raise it from outside of Canada sources, maybe with the odd exception. So the question in my mind on the VC cycle, and I saw it before, is can they survive this meltdown? I think the answer is going to be it won't be easy, but they're better positioned to get through this meltdown than they were back through the 2001, 2002 because by the time 2005 came around and they were trying the next fundraising cycle, it came up all zeros. So it will be critical to get through it. I have confidence that they will. Uh, certainly uh, a number of VCs will will probably not be able to, but I think the ones that have a longer track record would. Uh, buyout private equity, um, you know, uh, wasn't as impacted. So I think they've been waiting on the sidelines. Um, just like Mavericks, we closed our fund with half a billion dollars in April of 2021. And I refused to do a deal for an entire year until the meltdown occurred, because it was very obvious to me, uh, it would be significant. We kind of guessed when the timing would be. And when I speak to my buyout private equity friends, they all sat at the sidelines. So the question will be right now is a lot of these very good technology companies that were perhaps overvalued, what will happen to them? And if they need another round of financing, who is it going to be? And you know, I can say from a Mavericks perspective, we are heavily involved in looking at those opportunities, but at a valuation point that is nowhere near where it was in 2021, nor should it have ever been. That was always a fallacy. So seeing this 2023 is going to be a very critical year to see what really happens to many of these companies. Yeah, I'm excited to watch Mavericks as the journey continues. And I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. 
Um, and the first question would be, what's your favorite book? And if you're not a book person, it could be well, a movie, um, a podcast, whatever. I can tell you what I'm reading. Uh, I've just finished, uh, I mentioned the last bit of it, uh, Peter Zayon. Uh, he has a book called, uh, I'm sure in front of me, The, uh, the End of the World uh, as We Know It. And it's basically the whole uh, changing of the the global order and the impact globally. So and he's my favorite uh, uh, person who I read uh, from a geopolitical perspective. And then the second one is the fall of Robespierre uh, during the French Revolution. And uh, a friend of mine insisted that uh, I read this to understand uh what happens in times of turmoil. So I guess the themes that I'm reading is uh, we are in turbulent times. So history repeats itself. I'll have to add those two to my list. What are you most excited about in 2023, whether that's personal and or professional? I am, I know from a professional perspective, I, I think that 2023 will be both both the best of times and worst of times at the same time. And I am both excited and have massive anxiety uh, on funding these companies that I hope will be the next Shopify of Canada. Uh, And Canada needs it. And I I am worried about the future of Canada. And, And frankly, you know, following my accident, people had asked me, well, why did you continue to do that? And it really was this future of Canada. And I didn't feel that the mission was complete. So 2023 is going to be a big turning point year. On the note of of your accident, uh, the final question I always ask my guests is, how do you deal with hard times? Are there specific things that have worked for you? And, well, yeah. um, How do you, deal you know, I, I don't wish uh, having an accident like I did on anyone because there is no easy way how to handle it. Every day is is, is certainly a struggle. Um, but, you know, having purpose and hope in life is absolutely critical. So purpose, you know, with my family and leaving a young family behind um was something that I was not going to do and leaving my country behind uh, at a time when I knew things were going to be turning very badly. And, you know, those are my, uh, but without hope, you'll never reach your purpose. And, you know, I, I, I do hope uh, that I'll walk again. I mean, I walk every day. I practice every day. I just finished it right before um, I'm, I'm actually wearing a sweatshirt because I was walking and my walking is very unstable, but I do it every day and it's micro improvements. So I think Evan, you, you and I communicated on, I just entered my first bike race, uh, since my, uh, accident, you know, I did half the race, the, the first quarter and the last quarter. And I had an entire team of 41 people 
all behind me, ready to push me up over the hills. And I was like, no, no, it's okay. You know, don't worry about it. I can do it. And then the biggest hill was just before the finish line. And I screamed to them, get behind me and push. I can't pedal anymore. They all kind of laughed. And I, and, and so, you know, having that hope that I will cycle independently all the way through and get over those hills again is, is what, uh, drives me and, and surrounding yourself with people who support that hope. I, you know, and it can't be unrealistic hope either, but, but the moment you get into a situation of despair and despair is contagious, it's more contagious than hope, unfortunately. Um, and, and, uh, um, you know, and I, I, every day, I do wake up hoping that my day will be better than the day before. And I hope that that does not change for me. I love that. And John, this has been a great conversation. You've had a huge impact on the Canadian tech ecosystem. Your personal journey is super inspiring to me. Great. So Thank you very much, Evan. I appreciate the time it. to chat with me today. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Check out the podcast description for my social and website links to stay up to date with all future episodes.